Coming up on this week's episode of Check Your Balances, we talk small cap and international investing with none other than the Motley Fool's Bill Mann. Stick around. That's coming up next. Check Your Balances is a show produced and owned by Craftwork Capital. The views expressed by the hosts and their guests are personal opinions and should not be considered personal financial advice or the opinion of Craftwork Capital. All investments have risk and may lose money. Consult with your financial advisor, tax preparer, or attorney prior to implementing anything discussed, and please do not use this show as the sole basis for financial decisions. Welcome back to another week of Check Your Balances. I'm Ross Anderson, joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dan Maseka. Dan, good to see you for another week. Ross, it's good to see you as well. And this week, I'm really excited to be joined by an old friend of ours, William. Yeah, absolutely. From The Motley Fool, Bill Mann is joining us. But before we cut over to that, I wanted to offer a brief update on the story that I told about kind of my lifestyle creep situation going on. This is a couple weeks ago. And I had realized how much I was spending on delivery fees using like DoorDash and Grubhub and all these services. And so I decided I'm going to just go to the store. I'm going to go to these places. If I'm ordering lunch, I'll drive and pick it up. And so like three days into this decision, I'm over at uh, Halal Guys, which is right up the street from me. I'm like really proud of myself as I'm walking out the door going, yeah, like I, I made this commitment to stop wasting money. And I immediately dropped my cell phone <laughs> oh, glass first and just shattered it, just completely crushed the glass. And in that moment, had this like washing feeling of I tried to save myself four or five bucks in delivery fees and just broke an $800 phone. Oh, man. Serves you right. You've really just got to stay at home, bubble wrap yourself and um, have everything delivered now. I mean, I, obviously, that's not a correlation there in terms of like or causality in terms of what caused that. But uh, I do have an experience where every time I try to save money, just personally, I like look for places to cut a corner. It almost always results in something bad happening. So in my head now, doing something that's going to save money almost always relates in something bad happening. And that happened here. No good deed goes unpunished, as they say. And it looks like... Uh... That might be the trend for you and your your money-saving endeavors. That being said, my phone was about two years old, and the new model, uh, I, I used the Google Pixel uh, as my phone, and the new one ha- had just been announced, and it was coming out, so I've got the new, the new one of those. So uh, it wasn't all bad. And the, Go- the new Google Pixel looks amazing from what I've seen. It looks really good, but I'll, not that this is like a review of that phone. But even the smaller one, which normally I just like a smaller phone. I don't like the big like phablet phones. And even the small one now is huge. Like the 6 Pro is enormous, but even the 6 is really big. I just want like a normal phone sized phone. I don't need an iPad. They're outgrowing pocket sizes. Soon they'll have to bring back the phone holster that you can just clip to your belt. That was trendy. Absolutely not. When, when that comes back, I'm going to stick with whatever phone I had last. I definitely had one of those holsters for my BlackBerry. I thought it was so cool and important. Absolutely. Well, that that's one way to make sure that you look cool in school. Yeah. All right. Let's take everybody over to our discussion. Joining us this week on Check Your Balances, we are thrilled to welcome the man, the myth, the legend from The Motley Fool, Bill Mann, welcome to the podcast, buddy. 
How are you guys? We are thrilled and even better that you're joining us today. So excited to have you on the show. And I know that we have a lot of overlap in terms of our listeners and some of the Motley Fool shows. So they are getting a double or triple, however many doses of you this week that they can stand, they're going to get it. (laughs) I mean, in truth, most of them have left at like 0.5 of a dose, but I really do appreciate uh, the the welcome. And, you know, we, we all work together for for a long time and it is it's it's really great to see both of you again one more than the other but uh you know but still great to see both of you i can take that's a right, hint, Bill. Bill. that's all right <laughs> yeah everyone's always happier to see me than ross and i think there are more than a saying. handful of reasons for that i'm not saying i'm just saying i wanted to kick us off today because bill we've got a listener question here uh from greg and greg asks a couple things that i think you are particularly well suited to help us answer. He reached out, said he loves the show. Appreciate that. He's got really two questions. One is an episode about finance definitions, some things like network effects, flywheels, multiples. That's a rabbit hole that we could spend a lot of time in. Let's start with his second question, where Greg asks, what is a foreign stock? He says, okay, before you laugh, hear me out. I've been hearing about asset allocation, avoiding home country bias, the benefits of investing internationally, but it got me thinking, how does one define a foreign stock? Is it where the company's headquartered? Is it where the revenues are coming from? Is it the markets they participate in? Bill, can you unpack that for us as an international stock guru yourself? What do you think of when you read that? I love that question. And and the answer is it's kind of all three. So there are companies that trade in the United States that are based in places like Columbus, Georgia, that have 95% of their revenues overseas. Would you consider that to be an American company or would you consider that to be an international company? By domicile, 100% American, right? Sure. Yeah. But but by uh, if, if you think about where their revenues come from, it's international. So I wouldn't get too caught up in the definitions uh, that much. For me, the definition, if you are looking for something that is that, that is diversifying, which I think is the basis of the question, what you're really want know going to want to know is where they make their money. So you can have all sorts of companies that are based in the United States that have a huge allocation uh, to to making money overseas. Uh, so anything that's more than fifty percent, you could reasonably consider to be foreign. And I think that that's I'm in agreement with you there. I think that that's how it should be looked at: is where are we actually participating? Where's the economic impact of the company coming from? That being said, that's not how indexes are built. If you buy the S&P 500, it is completely based on where the company's domiciled. Yeah. If you buy a an international index fund, it's completely that. And so in many of the ways that we're traditionally looking to get that exposure or to add that diversification, it completely ignores this point that we think is probably the <laughs> more important piece of this, which is where does the money actually get made? So it, it's really difficult to implement. It's difficult to implement, and it even gets worse because on a company, on, excuse me, on a country by country basis, on an index by index basis, the rules are different. So the S and P five hundred is five hundred American companies, regardless of where they make money. But the the FTSE one hundred, which is the largest one hundred companies on the London Stock Exchange, it doesn't matter where they're from. So there's like a, a bank from Georgia and not Atlanta, Georgia, but former Soviet Georgia that's part of the 
part of the in the largest index in in on the London Stock Exchange. So in every place it's a little bit different. So I wouldn't get I wouldn't as an individual investor or as an asset allocator get too caught up in the definition, but you know that indexers have to. They have to be they they have to make rules and they have to stand by those rules. If you're an indexer, how much do you think that really matters if you're building these portfolios of the broadest blankets, I figure you'll just sweep everything under the allocation anyway. And if the bucket doesn't exactly match what you're hoping you're getting, you might be picking it up somewhere else anyway. I think that's a fair way of thinking about it. Yeah, I think it's really important that you have international exposure. And and just on an apples to apples basis, if you've got a company that's based in Korea, there's a pretty high likelihood that it's getting enough of its revenues in Korea as opposed to elsewhere that it matters. You know, so even though you've got companies in the US that also make money in Korea and Korean companies that make money in the US, when you're thinking about an asset allocation and you're thinking about exposure, Ultimately, it will work out that if you own companies in other countries, you are getting exposure to the countries themselves. So we were joking in a uh, kind of an off-work Slack channel the other day that the code word for probably going to underperform U.S. assets is diversifying assets right now. <laughs> <laughs> and over the last You're decade... only saying that because that's what's happened. Well, <laughs> Right. Yeah, just this weird evidence-based conclusion that we've been coming to. And certainly, if you look historically, and we talk about the last 50, 60, 70 plus years, that's not necessarily true. International stocks have been a diversifying element. There have been periods where they have outperformed the US. Over the last decade, I have the chart in front of me, the S&P 500, just the price change is up 276%. And the MSCI uh, all-cap world index... 147. So you've almost doubled it for being a US home country bias. All of the things that us financial planners like to tell people, hey, don't do that, has worked out to double the returns. Have people given up in this? It gets even better when you get a little bit granular. So uh, I, I've tracked a spread. I've tracked international returns on a bunch of different markets. And since 2015, the single best performing stock market in the world has been the NASDAQ at 226%, uh, 226% gain. And this is on a dollar basis. Daniel, would you like to guess the country that has the worst return since January Ooh. of 2015? Let's see. I'm going to go, I'm going to go South Africa. Not a bad guess. The actual answer is Turkey. Oh. Turkey with a minus 56% return. Shots oh, fired on they the Turkish stock market. Should have yeah. stayed on the sideline. Yeah, should have stayed on the sideline. So you know, when we, when we here in the U.S. talk about when we talk about uh, the stock market always goes up, it's a very um, American conceit, right? In a lot of countries, that hasn't been the case. I mean, J- um, Japan went through a thirty-one year bear market, which I'm told is kind of a lot. I mean, that's kind of a long time for for your stocks to be underwater on average. So the US has outperformed everything else up until now, but something else is also true. The Nasdaq is the most statistically expensive stock market in the world. So at some point 
the diversification benefits both from both both in terms of decreasing the volatility in your portfolio and in getting access to lower priced markets is going to matter. I don't I don't know when it's going to happen. I know that it is going to happen because it it has to. Yeah. As as we think about that kind of what are you buying and what price are you paying for it? There seems to be a lot of complacency in that space right now. And and I think that that you know, has been even amplified when we think about the meme stocks and some oh of the gosh. like complete yeah. recklessness that you've seen. Yeah. And that's not a shot at those people. If they want to take a gamble no. and, and maybe set their money on fire, that's cool. That's right. But um, they got a it, big it, wallet it, right now, some of them. Yeah. So, so <laughs> you know, if, that, if that's how they choose to spend their money, but it, it's certainly not based in sound investment. That's right. I can't hear you through all of my money. <laughs> <laughs> What were you saying? Yeah, about- they're they're going to take the chart I was talking about, make an NFT out of it, and then run to the <laughs> That's bank. <right. laughs> Call it. Can I can I put in the first bid? <laughs> That's right. Exactly. So you know, so for example, I was talking to someone the other day, and 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 he he put up a bunch of names. It was his portfolio, and he said, "Do you see any big red flags in this portfolio?" I was like, "Yes, on a blended basis, it's trading at a price to sales of twenty four. Which is a lot. I mean, it, it, historically, historically, you would never make that bet. Now, today, nobody has been penalized for making that bet over and over and over again for the last 16, 17 months. But it's, it's still, that's a pretty long bet. So, you know, just, just so we don't get too, you know, too, too deep into, into statistics, usually you would con- consider a price to earnings ratio. Of eighteen or nineteen to be for the S and P five hundred to be about about average. So you're not talking about earnings. You're talking about earnings before everything else, right? Like you're talking about revenues. So twenty four times revenues. I think what you're actually talking about is really the the first part of Greg's question, which is things like multiples and, and yeah. flywheels and everything else, right? But but what we're talking about are multiples. So we when we talk about price to earnings or price to sales. Those are two very important multiples that we're talking about and investing a lot. And so we can think about it that if you've got a candy store on the corner that sells a million dollars worth of candy and it's trading at $20 million as its market capitalization, the total price that you'd have to pay for that company, you're paying 20 times the sales of that candy store. And that's before they've paid any of their staff. They've paid their electric bill. That's before they've actually bought any candy and paid for that. So you're really thinking of a top line multiple of price to sales. That is before anything gets paid. And then on the earnings side, that's going to be net of all of those things. That's after we take out all of the cost of their candy, what they've invested in growth and marketing and all of their other stuff. That's going to be your price of the company relative to those things. So we're actually kind of dancing around the first part of Greg's question. Absolutely. And also, we can tell by how you formulated that explanation that it is just a couple of days after Halloween. So candy on the brain. (laughs) (laughs) It's absolutely true, though, when you're talking about paying 20 times revenues, you're assuming an awful lot of this candy maker. 
you are assuming that they are going to be high margin, that they're going to be able to grow without using much money. So yeah, the assumptions that are being made on the domestic market, and I'm not saying that they aren't achievable only because they never have been. They may be achievable now. We are we are an inf- information economy where 100 years ago, we were, were a steel bending economy. So yeah, it's certainly possible. It's just an historically bad bet. And so when we're thinking about international stocks in particular, if we're moving away from indexing, I think part of what can be attractive is because people have such a home bias, you might be able to find gems over there that aren't household names, but that are executing really well and haven't been run up as a result. So uh, traditionally, if you're stock picking, I think that that's a very attractive pool to swim in if you're putting the work in. I think that's exactly right. We can think think about three economies. Uh, Canada, which in fact is another country, Australia, and South Africa. If you think about those economies, you think about two things. You think about banking, and you think about some sort of mineral or oil extraction. And those are the largest parts of those economies. But all three of those company, uh, countries, I keep saying companies instead of countries. Uh, so you can tell where, I, where my thoughts are every day. All three of those countries have incredible tech environments and tech industries. So you can go into these countries and look for companies that are ignored in a way that even mid-cap size companies in the US are not ignored. So that leads me to another question that I had and I thought would be fun to kick around with you, which is just the lines at which we draw for like large cap versus mid-cap versus small cap. If you look at the Vanguard small cap ETF, the top holding has a market cap of something like $20 billion today. That used to be, in my opinion, where we would draw the line on maybe the small side of large cap, and that's in a small cap ETF. Now, granted, what they typically do on a lot of these ETFs or a lot of these indexes, because that's really what it's mirroring, is they set the rules, things get let in or let out at a certain time in the year, and then they let them float. So they're not quickly eliminating companies as soon as they grow their market cap too big. But should we be reevaluating what those lines even are? I mean, when we drew the definition of large cap, there weren't companies at two and a half trillion dollars, right? Like, are, are we just kind of archaic there? It's interesting. If you look at even in 1980, the largest companies in the US had market caps of 15 to 20 billion dollars. The very, very largest. So you're not talking about that long ago. This isn't ancient history. So yeah, those those borders slide over time. For me, the easiest way to think about the 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 the, the demarcations is just what are the largest 100 companies? What are the next 400? And then everything below that is a small cap. And that puts us at about 13 billion dollars now. But okay. a lot of a lot of funds that call themselves small cap can't even really invest in the small cap space effectively now. So I know a lot of people have the, you know, who are in government have uh, the thrift savings plan, which is a wonderful, wonderful instrument to invest in. It has $92 billion in assets. So the small cap fund has $92 billion in assets. That's just, it's impossible to deploy that money, that much money and be in strictly small cap. So they're in companies as big as $115 billion in market cap. Nobody would call that small. 
Yeah, that S fund is really an extended market. It's kind of everything outside of the S&P 500, right? They've they've just said, okay, we have to buy the rest of it because we can't keep it that limited. Um, and and you're right. We we agree that the the TSP does a nice job. We work with with plenty of folks that that have that as well. It's funny. I've never really thought about it that way, and it's almost a compounding problem. More money is feeding in all the time, and I think that's I mean that's the case for owning stocks, right? Is prices are going to be pressed upwards, hopefully over time. But we would yeah. hope. <laughs> yeah, knock on wood. Unless you're unless turkey, in, right? Unless we're in turkey. <laughs> So uh, there's this problem of continuing to find new places to invest. And I think paired with the fact that a lot of great companies aren't going public in the same way they used to, which makes small cap investing harder in the first place, or at least investing in potentially these game changing uh, businesses. Yeah, it's that, and that's really well put. Um, the way I would really think about the, the the way I would really think about it, I think small cap investing is is, is the place where individual and smaller investors and, and it can make some hay, right? You because you have so much more flexibility than the large money does. Think again about what I was, you know, what I was saying about the S fund at ninety at ninety two billion dollars in assets. If they find, even if they're looking for it and they're not because they, they index, a $500 million company under no circumstances it, will its performance move the needle for this for the fund. It just, it absolutely will not because the most they could buy of it is, doing the math backwards, $20 million. $20 million out of $92 billion. It's a high class problem, but it's, you know, it, it's, it's not going to work out that that is going to impact I aspire to our our position in the market being so large that we can't even move the needle <laughs> buying these puny five hundred million dollar companies. That's exactly right. Uh, yeah, exactly right. You know, um, I have that problem individually. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you about my needs. Um, it, but it is it 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 is absolutely the case uh, with small caps and also and also with a lot of international markets that. The big money can't really effectively deploy capital into those markets. It's just simply too much of it and too big to uh, to move the needle. Well, and this is a little bit of an aside from our discussion, but uh, one of the things that you see if you're a mutual fund investor is occasionally the mutual fund will close to new investments. Mm-hmm. That is, uh, in my opinion, always a red flag because that You've got two kind of competing things going on there. You've got the manager going, holy crap, I can't find anywhere to put this money. And and the sales guys are continuing to raise it. And generally, that problem is happening after a period of pretty good returns because people are piling money into the fund. And the sales guys are going, don't shoot the golden goose. I'm out here making my bonus this year. And you've got a, a poor portfolio manager going, what are you doing to me? Stop raising money. So if you ever see a mutual fund closing, that doesn't necessarily mean that the people running it are going to do a bad job. But I do think that that's a signaling risk that maybe they're having trouble placing the fresh capital and it might be time to think about other options. You know, it's, it's funny. I'm a little bit on the other side of that argument because, yes, it's absolutely a signaling risk. But there is something to be said for fund managers who, it must be said, get paid on assets under management. Sure. You can break you can break it down however you else you want, but in general, mutual fund managers make money depending on how much they have under management. So for them to say we're going to close this fund, even though it hurts us, it's 
it is a signal that they've got too much money. It's also a signal that they are somewhat more shareholder friendly, or at least as you you know as, as you formulate it, formulate it, uh, portfolio manager friendly. I I think that's fair. Yeah, I mean you're, you're you're saying yeah, it takes discipline to even be willing to shut it down, and and yeah, maybe I'm I'm just observing that tension that normally they waited a little bit too long to do it, and, and sure because they normally go out to all the advisors in the office, and I remember working at Morgan Stanley, they said this thing's shutting down in two months. Everybody get your money in, and you're going really <laughs> is is that what they wanted? That's right. <laughs> I'm I'm gonna get my money into something. Yeah, I mean you're you're absolutely right about the signaling, and it really does mean almost almost by necessity. It means that they have too much assets for their strategy. Uh, that was terrible English. English too many assets for their strategy. Uh, but it also isn't isn't necessarily the most shareholder unfriendly sign that they're willing to uh, to shut the door. Fair enough. Well, in reading William Green's book, who joined us a few weeks ago, he told a lot of stories of managers who closed their fund to investors. They returned money because they didn't want; they were doing great. They just didn't want the pressure of having to answer them, which is almost the exact opposite end of the pendulum, which I've, I've never been on the receiving end of that notice. But it, I mean, that is also an interesting thing to, uh, to think about. <laughs> Let me tell you, it feels yeah. great. <laughs> The, the Seinfeld tactic, go out on top. Nobody can That's ever right. take a shot at you again if you go out as number one. <laughs> do, do, the, do the exact opposite of George. Right. <laughs> Short George. <laughs> All right. So going back to small caps for, for just a second, do you think that the what seems like enormous increase in venture capital and private equity money and kind of private company funding that seems to be floating around has changed that at all. Because it seems to me like there's a lot of pride in staying private longer, coming to market at these 10, 20, $100 billion valuations, these just really crazy numbers that are going to make the VCs plenty of money when they cash out. Has that changed it at all for you? I think it has changed small cap investing. You think about you think about something that would not happen today. Amazon.com, when it came public, was a $200 million market cap company. That... Today, I'm not saying it would not happen, but at the same time, CEOs and founders and VCs have a different model in place. And and it has to do with there being so much money floating around in the private space. And and this is going to sound a little, this is going to sound, uh, you know, a, a, a little cynical. You guys know I'm a cynic, right? But we are too. You're in good that is, company. That is why we love you. Some of this, I think, has to do with the fact that 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 um, listing standards were tightened up in the in the wake of the financial crisis. I think some of it has to do with just a change of model. There being so much money floating around, and so many pension funds and universities looking for alternative alternative asset classes. But I really do think that it, that that a lot of companies uh, look at, like Dodd Frank, for example, and say, "What do I want to be public for? That doesn't seem fun. That doesn't seem fun to to, to report to or hit the stand, you know, the hit the standards of. Why why wouldn't I remain public?" So I don't know what the solution to that is. I do know that these things tend to swing on a pendulum. Yeah, it, it tightens up, and then we get a a run of SPACs, 
and oh, and people have loosened up quite a bit, yes. right? I mean that that's really what was happening is they're saying, hey, this is a much easier way to IPO. What what are we going to file all this paperwork for? Just somebody buy it. Not only was it an easier way to 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 IPO, and here's where we li- lose all of your all of your listeners because I'm going to talk about. Uh, SEC form arbitrage Ooh. because you got to uh, if you go for a traditional IPO you have to file an S one and an S one is a very structured document in which you can't promise anything you just say this is what's happened but if you do a merger which is what a SPAC is you get to file an S four which can be as flowery and as promisey as you want like you can't defraud people but you can talk about the future. So that was one of the real attractions to going public through a SPAC versus an IPO. All right. So, Bill, I don't want to completely open up a can of worms as we round third base here, but I am curious about your view on the crypto space. And I'm going to say something that may not age well because we are putting this out into the world and people could call it back and make fun of me and, and call me an idiot forever. I'm going to compare crypto a little bit in my mentality to the dawn of the internet, right? The dot-com bubble in a way. And I'm not saying it's a bubble, but I do recognize that the technology and what's going on could be revolutionary. But I also don't think that that means we throw out all of the fundamentals of, hey, you got to make money at some point. That's been my view on it. And I think that there's another iteration coming where it's going to make more sense how all these things make money and why we might invest in them. But I'm curious your view. It is. So first of all, I have been a conscientious objector for for crypto forever um, because I am deeply concerned about the the allocation of energy that it takes to, to produce all forms of cryptocurrencies. It's really, really destructive. You think about think about the fact that we went through in Texas, for example, an actual power crisis this last year where people died, and now Texas is now welcoming cryptocurrency miners with open arms. Like, what in the world do we think is going to happen? So, uh, I am a bit of a conscientious objector there. I am also mindful of the fact that there really has not been a really great use case for any cryptocurrency as of yet. I mean, we've got NFTs, so people are, you know, pe- people are uh, producing pictures of monkey butts or whatever, and they're getting <laughs> sold for for twenty million dollars. So that is happening. I'm in the wrong business, Bill. I'll draw you a monkey butt, Ross. <laughs> I got you, and, and I'll buy it from you for twenty million dollars. Sold in sold. Shiba Inu. <laughs> Okay, so that's good. That's how that business happens. What is attractive about uh, what is attractive about cryptocurrency is that uh, is that it's non-inflationary, right? It's a fixed amount, and I think that I think that sort of the the, the libertarian ideal there is you know is is sound. The thing that I worry about and wonder about is even if there is a fixed amount of any one cryptocurrency, there is no fixed amount of the number of cryptocurrencies that you can that you can form. There's tens of thousands of them now and and a lot of them are literally ridiculous and are being sold i mean it's it, li, li, if we were to write some code and start monkey butt coin tomorrow it would work that's not I mean, the worst idea i've heard today bill <laughs> yeah i mean especially with especially with daniel backing it up it would work 
I will post my illustration uh, somewhere <laughs> in the feed. But yeah, I mean, there are some coins that we can't say the name of on the show. Like, and people rally behind them because it's funny. And there's yeah. a mass of people with money to spend on on something, or, or and they call it investing. Yes, and and a lot of them when when people of my age and hair color talk about this sort of thing, like ah, you're just old. But here's the thing. I cut my teeth during the midst of the dot-com bubble. Like, I've seen crazy. I We have lived through anything. You could take any word. Monkeybutts.com would have been a $10 billion company in 1999. Anything with a dot-com, right? Anything with a dot-com. didn't need a business attached to it. It just needed it needed an address and a website. So we've seen it. So I'm not saying that they are all going to end up worthless. I am saying that 95% of what is happening is garbage and probably the other 5% there's something in it. We just don't know which 5%. Now, that aligns a lot with how I've been thinking about this as well. And I've said a bunch of things that I think have sounded smart. And a lot of people that have ignored everything I've said have been out there making a lot of money. So take take all of this with a grain of salt. <laughs> Once again, I can't. I can't hear you <laughs> through. I can't hear you through all of my money. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, I firmly recognize why people might be ignoring everything we just said, but uh, I certainly agree with your take. I appreciate it. I wish I was right earlier, right? Like, I mean, actually, I don't really wish I was right, but I, I, I would actually like to not be right about this would actually not like to be right about the fact that that I believe that the amount of power that's going to be used to to you know to to create these monkey butts is not going to be worth it for society and that and that people who are not participating are the ones who are going to suffer but understood uh well bill I got to tell you we really appreciate having you on the show uh you you are phenomenal it is so great to catch up with you guys, and I really do appreciate. Uh, I you know I really do appreciate the invitation, and literally any time for one of you. Sounds the good. other one no. yeah. <laughs> for, for for one of us. One more huge thank you to our guest this week, Bill Mann. We really appreciate him coming on the show. He's always a lot of fun and always a huge wealth of investment knowledge. Such a pleasure to have him. If you have any questions for us, send your emails over to outlook.com. I'm sure Ross has a few mugs laying around in his garage still, so you might be a lucky recipient of one. I do. I would love to send them out of my house. We probably ordered too many of them, apparently, for our show audience size. <laughs> well, I know that we've gotten great reviews from the few folks who've gotten them, and uh, we look forward to hearing your questions and show topics. Again, outlook.com, and we will see you next week.